This is Labor Wave Radio. On this episode of the Labor Wave, we celebrate the life and ideas of the recently passed David Graeber. Before getting into the episode, wanted to give a shout out to our most recent patron, Adam Naughton, who became a strike captain via our Labor Wave Patreon. You can join the Patreon as well by going to patreon.com backslash laborwave. As Adam has recently joined, they will be receiving in the mail very shortly a custom-made Labor Wave t-shirt, illustrated zine of our dinner table after the revolution episode, and some really cool hand-drawn stickers. We also continually give gifts as we go, and you get access to the early release of our episodes. So welcome, Adam, to Labor Wave. We really appreciate you joining the Patreon. also want to give a shout-out to In The Red Records. They have recently given Laborwave permission to use the music of their artist on our show, so you'll be hearing during our musical breaks music from In The Red Records. Today we chose, in celebration of David Graeber, to keep the music fun and spirited in keeping with his legacy. So this song is called Shake Real Low by King Con and Barbecue Show, and you'll be hearing it in the outro to this episode. My guest on this episode are two comrades, Tony Vogt, who, in introducing himself, omitted the fact that he is also a co-founder and participant in the Enares Project for Alternative Futures, which puts out really great content and recently started uh, releasing YouTube videos discussing broad-ranging subjects uh, and particularly a lot of focus on Star Trek and the leftist themes within so check out the Anaris Project. Shane also joins us, who is one of the founders and participants in the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. Both of these things you can learn more about in our show links. We've also got some really cool episodes coming up, including another in our mini-series, After the Revolution, where we talk to Sean from the Seriously Wrong podcast about malls after the revolution. We're also going to have conversations with the Angry Workers, do another discussion of Comrades Read Together, talking about the book No Shortcuts. And we're planning and scheduling a conversation with Marion Garneau, editor and writer for Organizing Work, and Nick Dreger, one of the consistent contributors to Organizing Work, about the future of the IWW. All that and more coming up on LaborWave. Please follow us on our social media. We're at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And leave reviews and like our content on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and SoundCloud. With that, we hope you enjoy this conversation about David Graeber. Joined today by two comrades to discuss the life and legacy of the now recently passed David Graeber. Before we talk about Graeber's life and legacy and some of his ideas, I want to give my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves so I can see most quickly, Tony, on my screen. So how about we start with you, Tony? Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm Tony Vogt. I am a longtime Wobbly, as was David Graeber. And I'm also part of the faculty union at Oregon State. I am an instructor in philosophy there. Been involved in social movements for the last 40 years. 
And Shane, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Shane. Um, I'm one of the organizers that runs Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. I'm also in the IWW, but I'm just a little baby. And I've been doing lots of different anarchist and radical projects since I was a teenager. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you both here. Full disclosure, I have been a attendee of the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking, and I thought it was a great week out camping and getting exposed to a lot of new perspectives, learning how to climb trees that I have not yet utilized those acquired skills, but one of these days. And uh, Tony and I also have a great history in that he's often served as a mentor to me in my learning and political imagination. So this is a great crew to have this conversation with. I'm not going to like give too much of a rehearsal of David Graeber because I think a lot of folks are fairly well acquainted and aware of who he is. But just very briefly, Graeber was an anthropologist and he was also known as a very key proponent of anarchism as a political perspective. He wrote a lot of books. Probably the most famous, I would say, is Debt, The First 5,000 Years. He also wrote The Democracy Project, The Utopia of Rules, more recently, Bullshit Jobs. And for anarchists in particular, I think his big, big book is uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, which is like a little slim primer that, quite frankly, is a great introduction to a lot of his work and thinking. He passed away recently on September 2nd at the age of 59 causes still unknown to my knowledge. But what we were going to do is just kind of have a little panel discussion about some of his ideas that influenced us the most or the ones that we want to like chew on the most, talk about things we like, maybe things we didn't like, and just give a little bit of a celebration to somebody who I think lived a very a rebellious spirit and a rebellious soul. And I imagine he's having a lot of fun wherever he might be today. So who would like to maybe kick it off with just when I invited you to the talk, what was the first thing that you thought of when you thought of Graeber and things that he's impacted you by? One of the first things that I was thinking about was like, I'm in my early 30s. So, uh, you know, I was a teenager. I was getting involved in stuff. And like, I basically started organizing and identifying as an anarchist as a teenager, right in the time when the Green Scare was happening. So it was like 2005, 2006. And, you know, 9-11 had and the anti-war movement and the green scare sort of all sort of combined to end the sort of spirit that sort of uh, drove the global justice movement and i think in a lot of ways i came into this sort of era where you know i was reading all these books that were like oh there's gonna be these giant mass summit shutdowns and like black blocks and like this sort of like really building momentum and it was all gone and so it was sort of like being in love with a ghost. And I think David Graeber's work, you know, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology and Direct Action and Ethnography really sort of like laid out this map of that ghost we were sort of inheriting. And it was all sort of smashed to bits and gone at that point. And so that was sort of like the teenage me was like reading these books being animated by them and, and finding none of it. <laughs> so that's sort of like my first brush with David Graeber. I feel similar in that I came to political activation, I think, later in life. So I was already in my mid-20s. My chronology is so fuzzy. I don't even know how old I was ever. But I think I was in my mid-20s. And it was really in Occupy Wall Street. 
So Occupy Wall Street happened at the same time that a lot of other things were happening for me personally. And I didn't directly participate as much as I wish I had. I did a little bit, but not that much. And this was in Atlanta. And then when it was crushed and when it was over, I was kind of more shocked by just what happened, you know, how it was like brutalized by the police and just within a week swept away. And within that, I started actually trying to dig in and learn more and like come to educate myself about it. And I came to the Democracy Project eventually, and I came to like fall in love with Occupy Wall Street and feeling like I missed out on it. And I think that that's kind of similar to what you're saying, Shane. It's almost like, you know, uh, chasing a ghost, like trying to like get tap into this moment and spirit in time and place that just was always out of my grasp a little bit. Tony, how about you, Cher? Yeah, one of the things about fragments of an anarchist anthropology is I think you mentioned this, Alex. It's a great introduction for anybody who's unfamiliar, not just with Graeber, but with anarchism. And it's really accessible, well, pretty accessible. It's still a slight bit academic and, and scholarly, right? And, and he's been critiqued for that. But he was a, he was a scholar. If he, even though he's an anarchist scholar, even though he came from a working class background, and he had some uh, important things to say about being working class in the academy. But it's a spirited book. It's fun. It's got verve or chutzpah. I think it has sparked a lot of people to search further into the history and anarchist perspectives. And I've given it as a gift to a number of people. I'm just going to say I, I mourn his passing. I miss his voice. He was onto some really interesting things in these last few years that he will now not get a chance to develop. And so I guess it's up to the rest of us. I think to sort of go off of something, Alex, you were saying about Occupy Wall Street and, and this idea of, you know, being in love with the, the movement that just ended <laughs> before you joined up. Um, I was sort of uh, involved as a teenager in, you know, one of the things that radicalized me, you know, I was this young anarcho-punk kid and I you know was getting more politically serious and I, I was 18 and I was riding my bike around, got a flat tire and I went to sort of this collective bike shop that was in the basement of a community center called Stone Soup and sort of just by wandering up after, you know, working on my bike, met these weird people doing food not bombs and they had this library and like, you know, this sort of info shoppy community social center space. And in a lot of ways, like that was sort of what was animating that was sort of this like, you know, direct action network, the Worcester Global Action Network which was part of the Dan stuff of the global justice period, like hung on longer than it did in other places. I'd say it probably ended in, in 2007. And so like I was sort of in this echo of the global justice movement and the things that I was reading about in David Graeber, but I was doing more community organizing than like these gigantic spokes councils of 500 spokes and all these affinity groups. And like there was, there was like barely any of that around. And so, like, when, you know, Occupy Wall Street happened, I was sort of like, oh, yeah, this is it. And, like, you know, here's the rule book that we took from zines and, and reading David Graeber and, like, okay, we're going to go down to Occupy Wall Street. And we didn't really know what to expect. So if an affinity group I was in uh, went down and our only goal was to not get arrested. <laughs> um, but um, we got to Occupy Wall Street the very first night and uh, we were in this march that was going to 
Wall Street and we got to a fence and we were like, okay, like now we pull down the fence and everyone was like, oh, there's, there's a lot of cops. These cops are going to stop us. The, the cops are stopping us. Let's go back to the park. So like we were like, what? We're expecting, you know, this, this stuff of the global justice period. And, and we went back to the park and had a long ass meeting and we were like, this sucks. Let's leave. We thought it was going <laughs> to go anywhere. And, um, one of the things that's memorable of that is like David Graeber being there and like, he like inventing the people's mic in order to like make that bad meeting happen. But I remember just leaving really fed up <laughs> and like, you know, you miss your moment and then you miss your moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it maybe seems like a weird connection, but it actually reminds me of like the great Gatsby, you know, how, um, Gatsby has this like romanticized vision of his the love of his life, Daisy, and he like has pined and yearned for years and years to reconnect and recapture this love, this moment in time that he idealizes was like the the peak of his life. And then when he comes back to encounter her, he realizes that it was all in his imagination more than the reality. Like the reality really didn't live up to the expectations at all. It was kind of crushing. So anyway, that's what it connects for me that like you saying that. It's like there are these moments where I think even still today we're prone to like probably glamorize and like highly exaggerate the rebellious moments in time, like the experiences of it, the reality of it. A lot of times like anarchist organizing is a lot of boring meetings. Uh, It's not just throwing Molotov cocktails and uh, soup cans, you know, at the police. I must be an outlier because I generally like meetings, political meetings wobbly meetings. And my first really wonderful experience of a meeting was in 1983 in the anti-nuke movement when uh, my affinity group got arrested around with about a thousand other people and thrown into a big circus tent surrounded by barbed wire. We had refused to give our names upon arrest, so the cops were closing in. And I experienced my first folks council meeting with about 500 people and saw it work and it blew me away you know so there are these moments in movements that truly are real and you don't have to romanticize them and they're hard they're scary but they're real and i think graber was inspired by some of those moments himself i also experienced that to some degree in the occupy movement even in in smaller cities in oregon of course occupy was everywhere right there was an occupy antarctica well, it reminds me of, so in the uh, preparation for this talk, I revisited some of Graeber's works that I liked the most. It has been a little while since I read them, so I kind of remembered a lot of like why he's so appealing as a writer. I, I will say, like Tony, you mentioned earlier, he's maybe a little academic at times. I acknowledge that. That's true. But I will say, he's like one of the few like academic writers I encounter that actually rates to be understood, mm-hmm. which I find refreshing. And you can tell he's having fun as he's writing. I think that there's something, there's just some fun that you have as a reader. But what you're saying about meetings, about those moments, it reminds me of his work in the Utopia of Rules, where he's talking about bureaucracy and the kind of hidden underlying appeal of bureaucracy, even for radicals and even for anarchists. And he defines it as the distinction between play and games, desiring play versus desiring games. And these moments of Occupy, these like explosive moments, these were moments of rebellion, not just Occupy, but things that seem spontaneous, 
I think, tap into our desires for play, which is like spontaneous creative moments of expression. But he says bureaucracies are actually like more about the desire for games, which are rule-bound affairs where you understand the rules, everybody, there's no ambiguity of it. And by abiding by the rules of games, you actually can win at, I guess, the games of life. I think that these are actually still a lot of the arguments we're still having within radical circles about how do we organize What's the necessity of the logistics behind things? How much do we need to have games versus play? And everybody's kind of trying to like invoke these different desires and inject it into movement spaces. Maybe that sounds really abstract. How can we make decisions together that honor the radical imagination and bring out all of our capacities? And I I think that this is something, it's an ongoing project within movements, right? Like nobody's really figured it out. There's moments when it happens. It's really worthwhile. Graber spoke to this somewhat. He's got on YouTube, I think. God, was it a TEDx talk? Did he actually give one? He has one called something like uh, political pleasure, which is sort of subversive. And he begins by saying, I've got to admit, I like meetings. And then he goes on to talk about how meetings have been robbed from us, like the coming together to make decisions and um, not just make decisions but honor each other's capacities for radical imagination and play. And I don't know if you two know his essay called What's the Point If We Can't Have Fun? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great essay. And he actually argues for a metaphysics, a materialist metaphysics of play and intentionality from any kind of organization um, from the subatomic all the way up to the biological. So he's actually saying the universe is imbued with this kind of sense of play, has the potentiality of that. And it's built into, even on a material basis, it's built into, into our very bodies. And it's built into everything around us. It's a really interesting essay. And of course, he's building on kinds of philosophies that are, are opposed to mechanistic philosophies and trying to open the space for imagining a whole different world and how to relate to it. I don't think you can, uh, unless you're some sort of like pure insurrectionary person who just shows up to the riot and reads all the rest of the time. Like, mostly people enjoy meetings to whatever extent. It seems like it's sort of like, you know, some meetings are bad, some meetings are good. I think like the impulse of direct democracy is like just beyond the concept of meetings though. But I think like, you know, the essay about play and his style of writing, I think, are a big factor for why he's popular. Because, you know, if you think about, like, the other, like, quasi-academic or academic, like, people who have a mouth, public mouthpiece for anarchism, like, Noam Chomsky is like, you know, I love Noam Chomsky, but he's boring as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, David Graeber really brings it in and feels like, I'm going to write an essay about Batman. Or like, you know, I'm just going to be really goofy. And you can even see that in his sort of online presence. When somebody critiques him online, he gets kind of mad at them. But like, <laughs> he responds in funny ways. And I think, you know, we need that in leadership. It's an anti, like humor and play are, are part of, I don't know if folks are familiar with the book Joyful Militancy, but I think it's, it's sort of a, a useful injection into like an anti- Marxist and, and really rigid way of trying to change the world. Not Marxist, more vanguardist, I guess. 
I think you're right. I, I, again, that is one of the things that appeals to me is that he's having fun and he's kind of bringing fun into politics. And I think it's valid, but right now I'm perceiving in general an extreme problem of like morale and inspiration. And of course, we're living through a pandemic in the Pacific Northwest, wildfires getting more and more intense every year. You know, the police shootings of especially black folks in the streets is just disc- like continuing without any breaks. I get why it's easy to feel cynical right now, but low morale can really spread and undermine our organizing efforts in and of itself. And that like, we need to have things to fight for and to believe in and like be sparked and motivated and animated by an imagination of something better. Uh, Because what I found in all my organizing experience is that trying to like insist on practicality by all means and just go for inches motivates nobody and nobody wants to come back to the meetings. Nobody wants to like participate that much. Like we need more joy. We need more fun in our movement spaces. And I think Graber's work helps bring some of that into the conversation. Yeah. One of the ways I think he helps is because he's really good at reframing things, taking just unexamined assumptions about everything, debt, work, meetings, political action, human evolution. You know, his latest works with, I forget his friend, David Ingro or or something like that. He was was an archaeologist and they were trying to re- imagine how human beings evolved and departed from the story that we all know that we all you know started in small bands and then there was agriculture and it established cities and they became hierarchical and so on and so forth and he actually writes with his archaeologist collaborator that's not the story that archaeology tells or anthropologists now tell it's wrong really basically wrong and so let's here he proposes another way of looking at ourselves as an evolving species. He says the first cities were often robustly egalitarian. He says our species did not in fact spend most of its history in tiny bands. Agriculture did not mark an irreversible threshold in social evolution. And then he says even as researchers have gradually come to a consensus on these questions they remain strangely reluctant to announce their findings to the public, even scholars in other disciplines, let alone reflect on the larger political implications. So there's a whole essay he, he puts this out in called um, How to Change the Course of Human History, at least the part that's already happened. I want to follow up with me on that because when I was reflecting on Graeber's passing and the ways that I think my ideas have been mostly shaped by him, one of the biggest things for me that I've come to realize is that I believe fully one of the powers of the state, one of the monopoly powers of the state that's not often highlighted enough is a monopoly over the political imagination. Like the state has a monopoly over violence. We hear that all the time, right? But I think that the state also has a monopoly over the political imagination, meaning the understanding and definition of what politics is, narrowly defining it, and then creating this kind of shallowness around what's possible. And I mean, like the Margaret Thatcher. Uh, motto is classic, right? There is no alternative. That's an obvious example of monopolized political imagination. I used to think that it was a shallow imagination. Like I even just said that word shallow. It's not. It's actually a rich and fully developed imagination. It's just a bad one. 
Like it's an imagination that believes that the world has to look this way. And that's just another story that we've told ourselves. So for me, I realized so much of my frustration in organizing spaces has come from recognizing that what people call common sense and pragmatism and practicality is actually a highly utopian imagination in and of itself that they are not even aware of. And I can link that insight so closely to Graeber's works and the way that he has blasted away assumptions like Tony's talking about. I think that's a good point. And like gets into some of the stuff that Gramsci was talking about with like cultural hegemony. But I think like David Graeber takes it in a lot more of a broader stroke zone in a pretty accessible way of doing it. That seems to be a lot of his power of like, here's his book debt and it's going to erase how we're supposed to academically and culturally think of money. So Tony, did that book that was supposed to come after that essay, you know, how to change the course of human history ever come out? Cause I would be fascinated to, to read the book. <laughs> yeah. And, and his, his collaborator's name is David Wingrow. So Graeber and Wingrow, I think it's going to come out. I think I read somewhere that it's going to come out maybe in the next few months. I mean, he did this for, he did this for debt. He did it for what we call productive work. He has this thing he used to say regularly when when he talked, which he said he said now think about it. We think of productive work as like working to produce a mug or a glass. He said, but you only do that one time. Then the rest of the work is cleaning it, taking care of it for twenty years, right? So he's saying this. The he's he's trying to reframe work as caring work and as a work of maintenance and sustaining our lives together, and not just narrowly defined as productive work. So he was really good at reframing things. I appreciated that in him. Because the production under capitalist terms is a narrowed uh, definition of production, right? It is the production of things specifically, but not the production of people, as I've heard David Graeber describe it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Paul Goodman his role in like the 60s, late 60s, and even in the 40s and 50s in terms of like sort of being this like anarchist gadfly that like put out these works that like sort of focused on these certain subsets and tried to turn things on their head and make us make us look at them in different ways. Is that really well remembered? Tony probably has a better grasp on him than I. I've re- I used to read him back when. It's been decades and decades, but that's interesting you you mention him in relationship to Graeber because there's a way in which there's a similarity there. They're both very accessible. They both are kind of provocateurs with really good imaginations. They both can be really funny. That's an interesting connection. And they, they both died pretty fucking young. Yeah. The role that they played is somewhat similar in my mind. Like, you know, just to, for a different era where it was like, well, this is the one voice for anarchism or this sort of version of an anti-capitalist left that's going to get any airtime and they're sort of goofy and it's <laughs> important it's, it's, <laughs> one of the things that you know i was uh rereading some of the essays and possibilities and one of the things that he talks about is like the idea of a joking relationship and like what is politeness and that joking relationships tend to be more horizontal in egalitarian like the ability to have jokes with each other 
is not, you know, you don't say poop to the queen was sort of the, the thing he wrote. But like, I think having a public leader or figure or like mouthpiece and having them be funny is, is really important for, for movements, but also sort of inflected around this like anarchist, what is leadership question. But it was striking me, especially with their later work, how similar it was. Like Bullshit Jobs is like the same book as uh, People Are Personnel by Paul Goodman. It's just really interesting. I wonder, though, if that brings up one of these like tensions around uh, leadership and kind of like things in organizing spaces that shall not be said aloud. And that is charisma matters <laughs> in organizing. Like I think that anarchists, uh, you know, I include myself within this category, are very invested in horizontal networks and like trying to blast away hierarchies where possible and more specifically social hierarchies, right? Sometimes organizations need a bit of hierarchy or at least bureaucracy within them. And because of that, I think there's a real tendency to want to push against like the charismatic leader model, which was like maybe a model that like Martin Luther King Jr. represented better. But at the same time, like it is fair to acknowledge that Graeber had charisma. And I think that that's a lot of the reason that he actually gained influence. Not the only. He was still a brilliant writer. He had a lot of insights. But his charisma mattered. He was funny. And I know you said Chomsky's boring, <laughs> which I guess now, but like Chomsky in the 90s was pretty lively. And I thought pretty like he had his he had his own brand of charisma amongst the particular people. So I don't know. This is just Graeber was really prone to like ask a lot of open-ended questions even end his essays with questions rather than conclusions so i'm kind of just throwing this out here as an open question is how much does charisma really matter in our organizing and how much are we willing to even acknowledge it i mean i think it matters a lot <laughs> it's it's sort of a you know skeleton in the closet for a lot of folks and it can replace a lot of other things or mask over a lot of other things but yeah the anarchist hand-wringing around leadership is not functional in my opinion hmm. what do you mean by that some of it is like we both need leaders and you can have leadership models that are accountable and saying we don't have them in some ways like joe freeman's you know the tyranny of structurallessness or what have you which is more about leadership than it is about you know you can have organizational models that have leaders don't have leaders and have that be systematic but I think like pretending to not need them has done us no good because it's sort of just this opaque movement that sort of has no public interface. And what it has is on, only on a local level. So it feels fairly hard to understand. I wish Graeber had written more about that. I'm not sure what we're talking about when we're talking about charisma. I kind of know it's like, you know, okay, does it mean that you're able to get people to listen to you? You're able to move them? And if so, then there are people who have that developed more so than other people. And as anarchists, we hope those are also people, like I hear Graeber was, to some degree personally, aware of their own charisma and willing to um, step out of roles when, when he felt like he was given too much authority. He wanted to reflect it back to the people who wanted to give it to him, saying, no, do for yourselves, right? At least there's some stories from Occupy about him doing that. So I don't know. Charisma. Because you could have charisma on the right and the left, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the challenge is the right openly embraces it, and they unify under it. And like they, the single leader is a model that works perfectly well for them. 
So we have this challenge because I, 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 yeah, I understand what you're saying. Charisma is defined in what way, but it's difficult for me to like bounce from any space to any space where I don't see some type of charismatic leader having influence over that group. And I think like Shane's saying, denying it doesn't benefit us. And maybe that's one of the legacies of Graeber that I, he probably wouldn't have put it this way, but Occupy had a legacy of claiming no leaders. And the challenge and critique to that message that came out of Occupy has in some ways almost discredited Occupy entirely amongst a certain cadre of leftists that I don't think should be listened to all that much. <laughs> but unfortunately they, unfortunately, they have a platform and they get listened to. And now I see Occupy, even in this uh, anniversary that's just passing of Occupy, it's characterized as something that was just a drum circle of a bunch of hippies that had no relationship to real people in real life. Because it's like they take these cheap shots about the kind of leaderlessness of it and the horizontal networks of it. So maybe this is one of the legacies that Graeber helped introduce into like anarchism itself or like into the public, you know, consciousness around movement spaces that has had some negative impacts. I guess it's just sort of like, you know, you can kind of see it that way. Like certainly a lot of Occupy like went in funny directions and like sometimes went nowhere and then ultimately was just repressed, which is ignored. But like, you really have to think about like the bigger picture of what Occupy accomplished and whether, you know, whatever tiny, more disciplined organelle of whether it's a affinity group or a vanguardist group or whatever thing, like, you know, what your impact as, as that has done. <laughs> and I would argue like Occupy Wall Street sort of captured the energy post 2008 that put like class analysis and discourse back into the American public and that's directly what led to Bernie in my eyes and then that's directly what led to the DSA in my eyes and like where that will lead who knows but like that's a big impact that's like a cultural shift that would have been impossible without all those hippies beating on their bucket. <laughs> It also created space in uh, communities of color that kind of had a problematic relationship with Occupy in that, you know, it was often too much of a white space, but that white space got challenged a lot too. And there was there were groups like Occupy the Hood um, and there were indigenous people that were in, in relationship to the movement and demanded that we talk about decolonization and not Occupy. So it gave rise to these ripple effects that I think were, were tensions, but they were creative tensions. And finally, I think productive. I agree too with the um, kind of chronology that Shane provided in terms of like one thing influencing the next succession of events. And I, I agree, like I think prior to Occupy, there was also some explosive moments like the uprising in Madison amongst labor unions and a coalition of forces and the Arab Spring. And I think these things were confluences that helped also spark Occupy. And then I agree, Occupy put class politics back on the map, able to talk about it again. And Bernie Sanders like openly embraced the rhetoric and language of Occupy Wall Street in all of his campaigning. I mean, he regularly referred to the 1%. And that language we got, we were able to use again because of Occupy. And I agree, Bernie's popularity and success led to the success of the DSA. The interesting thing to me is that you'll hear some people that have large platforms within the DSA in like Jacobin and other platforms on the left right now that acknowledge that Bernie helped them build their socialist organization 
and they will be the same people that will shit on Occupy at the same time and like try to dismiss it as like having any bearing or any influence. So they won't acknowledge what I think is a pretty clear connection. And also I place myself in this legacy too of like Occupy helped radicalize me and turn me into the organizer I am today. Those are, th- those are metrics you can't really capture very easily. How many other people were sparked and inspired and like came to radical politics because of Occupy that we don't know? Occupy Portland and Occupy Oakland, I think, had a whole lot of folks taking on different projects, initiating projects within, within the movement. And then when Occupy was basically crushed by state repression, like you mentioned earlier, Alex, coordinated efforts, put it down within a week. It didn't smash all those projects. A lot of those projects continued. A really small example is here in Corvallis. Alex has been a part of this. Our friend Joseph Orozco initiated an Occupy reading group that is still going now. You know, it started in 2011. There are these demonstrable ongoing projects that change and evolve over time. Yeah, and that reading group, the Occupy reading group, was happening prior to me arriving. I used to live in Corvallis, Oregon. I don't anymore. But prior to me arriving, that reading group existed. It was still continuing. And because Occupy had sparked my imagination and helped radicalize me, I was attracted and gravitated to the Occupy reading group by a flyer. And I started going. And quite frankly, no shade to any of my previous professors, but I learned a lot more in those reading groups than in my four years of higher ed and then my additional years of getting a master's education. So I agree. I think there's lots of things happening that still are directly connected to Occupy that you just can't measure. And you can't say that it was a complete failure or that it wasn't a real movement or mass politics or whatever people's claims are these days that want to be critical of it. I mean, I think each time there's a big movement peak or a crisis, a new crew of people get dumped into the left and like, a lot wash out, but a lot stay. And like some of the stuff happened through Occupy, and then a lot of people just joined in 2016, you know, because they're like, oh, it's Trump's the rise of fascism. And that was a big sort of burst. I'm sure George Floyd's response in, in this wave of CLM is going to be even bigger group of people just like radicalized and dumped into the left. But like if you didn't really know what it was like pre Occupy, like the foundations or the cultural shift are just not there or inconvenient to whatever political line you're trying to take, like Jacobin and things like that. So maybe we could shift a little bit here because something else we were talking about within this recent conversation around Occupy and leadership is that Graeber had ideas too around vanguardism. One of my favorite essays of his was uh, titled The Twilight of Vanguardism. And what I really like about this was kind of, again, as Tony was talking about, his ability to refine just basic assumptions, basic assumptions even on the left, around what a vanguard even means, how it's defined, and who has like kind of the hegemony over that idea. Because, you know, a lot of people hear vanguardism, they think Leninist political party of intellectual cadre that like basically disconnect themselves from the movement and repress all the like people on the bottom. But Graeber had a really, that essay was interesting in that he kind of highlighted the origins of even the ideas around vanguardism. And even it has its own inflections within it of like some are more of the intellectualized nature of the vanguard. But then there's this other inflection of vanguardism that's more like the avant-garde, where it's like creative creative provocateurs and artists and people that cut against the grain of popular thinking are the ones that can help spark the imagination and spark people to action, maybe even use their charisma 
in these positive ways to build organizations around them. So just throwing that out there, interesting ideas around leadership that he had even there. I always appreciated with Graeber that he definitely saw a role for the counterculture and for artists and for creative folk. Um, and he had an affinity for that. That's one of the things that's sometimes find on the left that's easily dismissed. Like, again, you know, it's the drum circle. It's reduced to the drum circle or something like that. It's so much more profound than that. And I, I love that essay you're talking about, Alex. I would encourage your listeners to read it. I think it's, like, interesting because, like, in a lot of ways that essay was sort of, like, the death now moment of, like, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. We were the last one standing. Anarchism. Like, he's got those essays with Andrzej Grubacek, or however you say his name. That's sort of, you know, the new anarchism. We're the new radical paradigm. And I think those were really important to me as a younger anarchist of being like, all of this is irrelevant and I didn't need to think about it ever. <laughs> like, it's just now that I'm going back and reading any, like, Lenin or Mao or whatever, I'm like, oh, these people suck. <laughs> like, he built so much of the foundations of my thinking around that that I never even bothered. And now I'm going back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really shouldn't bother. <laughs> I'm trying to think of uh, it, criticisms I, of Graeber. I, I, I guess I wouldn't call it criticisms. One of the things I wish he had done more in his writing, and I think he might have started doing it more toward the later years, is, is really acknowledge how much many of his ideas were sparked by, for example, people like Silvia Federici and radical feminism, radical left feminism, and indigenous peoples. He took inspiration from as an anthropologist, but also as a political thinker. And sometimes he would acknowledge that. And I just wish he had made those connections more explicit. Yeah, I think you're right that he has made like explicit reference to his affinity for like the Italian autonomous movements. But in kind of like once in time, maybe twice in time, and then kind of left it alone and stopped talking about it. But you can see throughout his writing that he clearly had this more autonomous streak uh, this feminist streak that I think came more out of the Italian autonomous tradition too, represented by Federici. And this is one of the things that I both like, and also I think you can push on and say that it's a critique of him that's valid, is I like that he was willing to make generalized statements. <laughs> like these are like kind of sins in academia is you can't make any sweeping generalizations. He would do it all the time just to like try to get to a question that he wanted to actually reflect on. But in doing so, I think he also would pass over the influence and the ideas where they were really originating from and maybe not give enough citation to the people that were probably getting him to think the ways he was thinking, too. I mean, I guess that's the difference in my eyes between academic and public work. Like, who's the audience for your work? And in a lot of ways, I think, depending on the book or whatever the essay is, like, he was kind of talking to the public slash other anarchists or activists. And that's an interesting audience. It was a pretty big soapbox. If I could pose this question, trying to get to today, you know, anarchism, I think, had a real uptick immediately in the wake of Occupy. And then I think, I'm not trying to say this is a bad thing, but I think DSA and like the kind of more brand of like democratic socialism had reigned, you know, primary among the left for a little while there. And then these insurrections happen again, and now people are talking about it. It's like we keep going in flux between all the like 
the flavor of the week on the left. Uh, but what do you think about today's like anarchist organizing? Like, how powerful is there in terms of an anarchist movement or the influence of anarchism among the left today? And how much do you think Graeber has kind of helped uh, nurture this movement? This gets to some of my critiques of David Graeber and how I really sort of gone back to these inspirational works from when I was younger. There's a great essay called uh, Revolution is More Than a Word by Gabriel Kuhn. In that, he sort of talked about, like, you know, the phase of David Graeber's saying anarchists are ascendant as, you know, if you're going to be radical, you're probably going to be an anarchist are, are over and sort of trying to analyze problems within anarchism. And, you know, this is sort of in the rise of the DSA and, and some of these other, you know, the, the re-rise of tankies and, and that sort of vanguardist thinking. And in some ways, I think like one of the things that David Graeber was really good at was sort of like invoking big idea thinking and he sort of argued you know and in a lot of ways that like anarchism is not all these like sects or big a anarchism it's direct democracy and direct action and like anybody who's pro those things and is loosely anti-capitalist or whatever is an anarchist and so you know that's a very powerful idea because it sort of loosens the the cage that we'd place on ourselves but it also kind of melted anarchism in a really weird way. Um, and this is something that Spencer Sunshine in a, in a dissertation talked a lot about is sort of like when you do that, you make it such a small a anarchism that basically any nonprofit that runs on consensus becomes anarchist. <laughs> and like, what does that mean for the left? And did we miss our moment? Because we, we had this moment where anarchism was very ascendant and it, it is and, and it isn't now, but um, we haven't capitalized on that, in my opinion. We sort of let it melt into whatever you're doing is kind of anarchist, so you're anarchist, so great. There's no strategy behind that at all. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things is sort of like, you know, what actually made the global justice movement was big anarchists in their own groups and in coalition and in spokes councils like and so i really feel like you know we're so we're always on the front lines of social movements but we never win anarchist goals we're always just sort of the front lines or the shock troops for liberalism and you know we're we haven't seen whether that's true of, of the george floyd struggle yet but it seems like that is one of the negative impacts in my opinion of dave graber is like he made everyone an anarchist and made no one an anarchist. Yeah, I, I do agree that he had like this kind of anarchism is for everybody approach, which maybe it is, right? But I think that there probably was some danger in like trying to make it a broadly appealing and like safer for folks to explore because anarchism is a scary word for many people, particularly newly exposed to radical left ideas, that it could have kind of emptied all meaning and content of what anarchism actually is in practice or made anything and everything fit within that rubric. I've heard this critique of him, and, and, and I, I kind of understand it, but I also I think I depart from it somewhat. I think that his writings are full of examples of how people in very concrete ways act and structure themselves in ways that are 
according to his vision of anarchism and his understanding of anarchism. I don't think it's just completely formless. But I get the critique, and, and maybe it's because he was championing anarchism at the time that both of you have talked about, right? And, and, and maybe that moment has passed. It has. But now you see, for example, there's more attention being paid to black anarchism. And there are indigenous voices reminding us that a lot of indigenous societies were anarchists before there was anarchism. And that, in fact, uh, European anarchists and libertarian socialists actually drew some of their ideas from having read accounts of Europeans living amongst indigenous people. So I think we're in flux and always have been and always will be. And so I'm not sure about trying to pin down anarchism as a specific set of practices. It's, I think his argument was that it was more like general principles. And if you generally follow these principles, um, the result will be something anarchistic. I would, I would like this discussion, though, about what are anarchist goals? If we are always in movements and inspiring movements and an essential part of movements, but they end up, we end up with reformism or liberal kind of achievements, what would we rather see? What are, what are anarchist goals? I think that's a good question. Before um, trying to answer it in any way, I, what you were saying reminds me of like Graeber's consistent example of communism in action. He kind of said in some ways, like he, I remember he famously says, we are already communists, right? And his example was, if you work on a project, like a construction project with two other people, and one of them says, hand me that hammer, the other two don't say, what's in it for me? <laughs> you know, that's like the capitalist logic. Like they just hand like people work collaboratively because his argument is that the most expedient and efficient way to do work together is communism. And he was an anarcho-communist, right? So maybe his like treatment of anarchism was trying to like really hone in on the small, the very granular levels of daily life, and arguing that those granular levels of daily life, when scaled up, would create something of an anarchism in practice. I think that reminds me of, you know, the sort of, uh, it's very Colin Ward, like the, the anarchist seeds beneath the snow sort of thought that like basically the only thing stitching the society together and all societies together is the sort of anarchist and communist impulse to like have mutual aid and run our lives in these sort of ways. And I don't think it needs to be outlined like everyone must be an anarcho-syndicalist something something you know that i think that's well good but that's not really what i see as the, the goal that should be sold i think like one of the things that david graber sort of left off the table was like you know if it's just direct direct democracy and direct action like the question should be asked are you against the state are you against capital are you against all forms of unjustified hierarchy and how do you think that's going to be achieved Without that, like, those questions of strategy, you know, just like a million billion nonprofits and brand, it's just like kind of everybody. And I recognize that that is like got power in it, which is part of why, like, Dave Graber is massively appealing. But minus those conversations, like, we're sort of left in the dust by people who will start asking those questions, whether we think those, their answers are good is another matter. I totally agree. Um, 
that wasn't his forte, <laughs> right? It, strategy. The, the thing about having so few voices, anarchist voices, contemporary voices right now that are public like he was, is that we want, I wanted Graeber to be able to do what we all need to be doing. He couldn't be everything. He was really good at some things and he left some other things pretty much untouched. Like I think you've identified and that's up to us. I like this conversation around what are the goals that we want to accomplish through anarchism, the strategies to get there. I think that's a really, really hard question, to be honest, because going back to Occupy, people always said Occupy lacked demands. That's completely untrue. Occupy said we demand everything, right? So I think that that is the same if we're going to talk about anarchist goals is like everything, right? We want it all. But if I have to be a little bit more specific, you know, my position is as labor, a labor organizer, I tend to focus on that because that's where I think I have my most immediate, I obviously have my most immediate influence in that. And uh, what I would like to see in terms of like some anarchist goals being realized is the labor movement at large busting out of the labor relations framework that is completely stifling and restrictive and, and narrowed in terms, well, Full of political imagination, but in a very narrowed sense. Like mostly the goals for a lot of organizing campaigns of labor unions is to acquire a collective bargaining agreement. And that's the victory. But that is leaves a lot to be desired. There's a lot of questions still in terms of what I would, if any uh, workers were on this podcast right now that have talked to me, they would know that I say a lot. Winning language in a contract is half the battle. The bigger battle is then enforcing the language that you won. And that is big. And then there's a lot of weapons that bosses and the state have to ensure that you don't have the power to enforce those contractual victories. And the IWW, I think, is not specifically an anarchist organization, of uh, anarchist labor union. However, I think it's much more prone and open to anarchist strategy and practices. And I think that the broader labor movement, whether they would scoff at this or not, could probably learn a lot more from at least the IWW's goals and principles and how they really do prioritize direct action on the shop floor amongst workers to exert power because we don't necessarily need a contract to win. And that's not just breaking out of the labor relations framework. I think if I'm being more specific, it's breaking out of the state monopoly over politics. Like we don't need to fight the political battle on the state's terms all the time. Uh, and the mainstream labor movement, I think, is a little guilty of that. Well, we also need that greater vision that the IWW provides. I mean, who's saying these days the abolition of wage slavery, the taking back of a, the, our life energies and our time from the capitalist system that uses us up and uses up our whole lives, right? So... I think you can't just have strategy in a vacuum. You have to have strategy towards something. And so the vision is really important. The vision is really important. You got to know what kind of horizon you're struggling toward. Otherwise, you have no way to measure whether you're moving at all. I think that's true. I agree with all of that. I think the, you know, then there's like spontaneous or not, things are generally not spontaneous. But like, for instance, the George Floyd stuff, like, you know, whatever gains might be had on a city by city basis in terms of like defunding or abolishing the police. It's a slam dunk of a paradigm shift that it is more legitimate 
for the social movement to just be like, actually get rid of this like institution, like nationwide. We just don't want it. Abolish it. And for, you know, a lot of normal, like non-activist, non-engaged people to start like saying that is its own, that's like an anarchist win unto itself. And I think what Alex was talking about in terms of like, you know, what if we ruptured the labor movement so it was not funneled into the normal union drive models and like bureaucratic and um, top down models, but was, was this grassroots like resistance movement and our paradigm shifts. They're not like, and then we got this reform X, Y, and Z. It's very explicit. Maybe that's the level that we're talking on. Going back for your listeners, if you haven't read fragments of an anarchist anthropology um, and you don't know Graeber, it's a good place to start. And one of the reasons is because he takes on those really big questions people have, like, what do you mean do away with all national borders? What do you mean do away with all laws? What would happen? And he looks it straight in the face and says, like, well, let's look at that question. What would happen? No spoilers. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I, I wanted to, to say about Graeber is that he did have a pretty articulate critique of capitalism. At some point, there's a YouTube of him giving a talk the last couple of years. And at, at some point, he talks about how capitalism has failed on all its promises. For example, he says, right, he says, like, uh, the promise that every generation will be better off than the generation before it. That's not happening. The promise that capitalism will make the world safe because it'll get everybody involved in economic networking. And we're going to all depend upon each other. And so that will lead to the abolishing of war. Well, that didn't work. Technological progress. Assuming that you could only have any kind of technological imagination and inventiveness under capitalism, um, which he says is bullshit, basically. But he says, you know, all the promises of all of us having hovercraft, our own individual hovercraft by this time. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's being facetious, but he says, like, even technologically, I mean, the iPhone's great for its purposes, but it's also built on the suffering of others. It also has cost in terms of ecologies and human labor and suffering that really should make us all question uh, what technological progress, who it's for, and what it is, literally. And he says, can we really reduce it to just the iPhone? Everybody says, the iPhone, the iPhone. Isn't our imagination greater than that? And capitalism hasn't been able to deliver on that. And so if it can't deliver on all these promises, why are we still enthralled to it? And he says, one of the things that keeps us enthralled is culture, specifically morality, a sense of shame. If we don't do what we're told and do it well, if we don't do our work, if we don't pay off our debts. And he, if you haven't read Graeber on debt, He's or look up a YouTube where he's talking about debt. It's it's really mind blowing and kind of his approaches really opens up a lot of space for reimagining how we should relate to each other, what work is, so on and so forth. So he says what what capitalism depends upon now is the ability to shame us. Well, we've had uh, this conversation for about an hour now. I'm wondering if you all think maybe this is a good way to conclude. 
because I think we could probably talk for a long time about uh, Graeber and anarchism and politics more in general. It would be fun to just go around and just have some kind of concluding thoughts, anything we want to share about even suggestions and recommendations for Graeber's work or like work to follow it. Um, I do also mourn him. Tony, you were saying this earlier. His passing struck me more than I was anticipating it would. And it was a really great experience getting to revisit, reread, and also anticipate this conversation with comrades, celebrating his ideas, having some friendly critiques to them as well. Um, so I really appreciate you both taking the time to do this with me. Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, it was certainly a blow to be like, oh, I, you know, like, I thought this person was going to keep on, you know, I passively, I was like, oh yeah, David Graeber will keep doing his thing. And I sort of instantly was like, oh, we really lost something here. <laughs> this was a big, big blow. Yes. Okay, but let's end on a better note than that. So, um, <laughs> Give us some inspiration. So kind of returning, maybe being a little redundant here, but uh, again, for me, Graeber's attention to the imagination and the creative powers that we have latent within all of us is the stuff that I consistently return to and that in particular I find motivating for me when I'm kind of trapped in these moments of despair uh, because organizing is frustrating. Being within institutions that have their own accumulated history and rigid orthodoxies and ways of doing things is frustrating. Uh, and just like desperately beating my head against other, the wall, trying to get people to just imagine the differences, imagine alternatives. You know, it's a, it's a taxing and exhausting thing. So revisiting Graeber and coming back to like, there is a lot of power in sharing these ideas and sharing the imagination and just nudging people, even with workers, when I talk, when I'm doing my organizing work, I just ask them to imagine your workplace tomorrow the way you want it to look. And even that conversation can open up things for them and for me that I just hadn't even thought of before and can allow us time and opportunity to really sustain our organizing energy long into the future. So that's, that's where I leave with Graber. Well said. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. That's a good endpoint to me. Well, with that, I really enjoyed the conversation, comrades. Thank you for joining Labor Wave Radio. And we should bring you back on again in the future, talk about our organizing projects. I particularly would love to do an update one of these days on the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. If folks do not know about the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking, you should definitely look it up. When we're able to do things in person again, it'll be a great opportunity to learn some of the ropes of practical anarchist organizing day to day. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, Shane. Cool. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Shane. 